Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today we're with Michael, our resident Ephesiologist, Andrew Johnson, Associate Pastor at Neartown Church in Houston, Texas. And I'm Matt Till. Hey, everyone. Good to be with you all. It's so good to be seen. Uh, yes, Michael, you look. Michael, you look slightly different. Did you did you use different earbuds now? I did. I put in my other ones. This is great. I got to look. This is that, great. The, the old style was really bulky. It is bulky. Matt is rocking the bulk headphones, but that's okay. Rocking them. That's right. Keeping it this old is school. the audio content you were coming to for a podcast for us to talk about what's sticking in our ears. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, uh, happy new year uh, to you guys. Yeah. And a good new year to you. Thank you. Right. We haven't been together since the new year. Yep. Here we are. 2022. Um, it's going to be a big year for us. Um, you know, we should actually go back and I just, you know, I'm just thinking about this off the cuff right now, but we did a, a prediction episode last year. Do you remember that? Uh-oh. Oh my goodness. We should go back and revisit that and, and then kind of like grade ourselves as to how, how filled of the spirit of prophecy we really are not. I would say, don't you mean line up and wait to be stoned episode? Sure. That one too. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Were we that off? I don't, I don't know. know. I'm not. I haven't so sure. listened to it yet. I'm just a little on the worried side. Yeah, if that was the case. <laughs> That's why I mean we should go back and listen to it. So, <laughs> well, today we are yeah. going to um, we are going to continue actually a conversation that we began before the new year, and um, you know we had a, a great discussion about the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast um, that recently had concluded, um, before the Christmas season, uh, we had some dialogue and some conversation about it amongst the three of us. Uh, we know others have been listening in and following along. I've even heard from a few of the listeners that said, Hey, I hadn't been listening to that podcast, but when you guys talked about it, I went ahead and started listening to it now too. Um, so I just encouraged by that, but you know, I thought, you know, even when we were discussing it further and there were some topics that we didn't get quite around to, um, we thought maybe it would be appropriate for us to have a bit of a follow-up today and uh, continue that conversation uh, into a part two episode here today. And then we'll move on to some other things um, later on into this later month. But um, more specifically, um, just to kind of continue the, the train of thought really from that podcast is something that was kind of left undone is um, there was some conversation, if you recall, in one of the episodes about the um, young, restless, and reformed movement and its influence on the rise and the fall of Mars Hill and churches of the like. Um, there was even including some uh, episode of um, with Colin Hansen, who wrote a book about that. He's with uh, the Gospel Coalition, um, but uh, seemed to be kind of an, an interesting thread that was pulled into that story line that um that actually i found i thought you know this is actually really significant um for us to really be thinking about um you know andrew what did you think as you were listening to the mars hill was this kind of a, a point of like hey i wonder if there's something else here underneath than just the story of what went on with mars hill and mark driscoll and that movement or did you see 
the broader picture, the broader evangelical movement of the day, of the time, of the generation that maybe needed also a bit critiquing? This has been the question um, I think that everybody's asking or kind of asking, or there's a reason um, that this podcast was so stinking popular. It wasn't that Christians were all gathering around because they wanted to eat some popcorn and watch something burn, right? Like this wasn't, this wasn't just a podcast detailing just the rise and fall of Mars Hill. The reason why I think it's landing so well is because so many people, myself included, are finding a great affinity or uh, they are seeing themselves in the likeness of this story. And uh, whether or not they were a part of a church like that, um, they may have had a mindset that operated similarly towards some of the, the ideas, philosophies, theology, uh, practice uh, that surrounded Mars Hill at that time. And so um, I, I did appreciate them bringing in the, well, just going to say, why are, are, because it's, I'm going to stumble less than when saying young, restless, and reformed over and over and over. Um, so, but with the YRR, it was, I think it was not just good, but it was necessary to bring in because at that time, as they talked about many times on the show, Driscoll was the champion of all things reformed and that Calvinistic bent, he was the poster boy of it. And, um, that's, that's a little disconcerting. It was disconcerting at the time for people who were already reformed, (laughs) uh, and who might have had understandings and leanings toward Calvinism, because when somebody comes out like a firebrand and says, and now you got to be reformed just like me and do all the things I do and say all the things. And that just makes uh, people who are like, look, bro, I agree with some of the things you believe, but the way you're carrying this out, I don't know. Are we on the same team? Do I want to be associated with it? And that YRR movement uh, created a bit of a firestorm around the reform tradition because it did get a whole bunch of people interested in it, but I'm not entirely sure they were actually interested in the theology in all of the aspects of scripture that it could be. Uh, And instead, like the guy leading my church is about it. So I'm about it. And so let's just run headlong into it. Yeah. What if, let me interject here just a moment and ask you guys a question. Would you have at this time back in the early 2000s, would you two have identified with the YRR? Would you call, would you have called yourselves this new Calvinist or the young uh, restless and reformed? So I am going to jump in because I love putting my neck on the line from Michael. Um, so I go on, go on. I, let me just say um, I would have uh, articulated that I probably would have leaned towards the reform tradition in belief and understanding of scripture, probably 1999. And 
I can only, I, again, the reason I can do that so accurately and pinpointedly is that was about my sophomore year of high school, right? So, uh, so I was a little young for the YRR uh, movement in its nascent phases. But at the same time, like I would have in Indiana probably been feeling that I certainly agreed with the uh, reform tradition. Um, I would say before it was cool. Does that make me the hipster, hipster reform person? Um, Before it it was the cool thing, I was in it. Um, No. And I was, but that was my understanding of scripture. And so when I was hearing some of the things come out from Driscoll and the like, I was like, okay, that does actually kind of line up to the way that I understand scripture, Uh, but it didn't go the whole way. And so I'll just leave it at that answer to answer your question, Michael. I don't know if I would have lined up. It really felt like the YRR was something applied to me as opposed to something that I said, I line up with that. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can we get a definition on the table? Yes, please, Michael. (laughs) Young, restless and reformed, or also what was commonly known as the new Calvinist movement. Um, do, Do we have a good definition of that? I don't know if we have a good definition of it. It's, it was a, or is, I suppose, a uh, theological slash sociological movement that formed around uh, different uh, reformed theologians and pastors, uh, Mark Driscoll, of course, being one, John Piper, uh, in different seminaries, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, for example, Al Mohler, um, and, uh, and at some level, even Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, um, I think <sighs> Colin, yeah, I think Colin was at Trinity when he wrote the book, um, in 2008, I think it was. And, uh, there was a growing, it seemed like at the time, a growing, uh, desire on the part of the, the young and the restless to also be reformed. Um, so, so, so that, that theological sociological phenomenon, uh, takes its roots, uh, back to reform theology of Calvin and, uh, to a lesser degree of Luther, but, um, but certainly Calvin is, uh, is, uh, a a part of the, that theological foundation. And then later, of course, in the United States, Jonathan Edwards, um, and then different, I guess you might call them movements, uh, revival movements as well, early on in the United States, or what was going to be the United States. Uh, I think if the if you were to look at tip, uh, traditional Reformed theology in the Calvinistic um, theological camp, um, what made it new was that Calvinists became far more missional minded and it became far more integrated um with within the broader constructs of society rather than actually separating or removing themselves from but still held to much of the same tenets the uh tulip if you will right the five points of calvinism uh typically um and seemed to be a little bit even more charismatic in in some of its um uh worship styles and things like that so i think those are the which was new Right. Like that was, that was, that was, that's certainly what separated it from the reformed tradition of the past, because, uh, I don't want to misapply 
I think it has been said of Presbyterians. This was a joke in Indiana growing up um, that, you know, Presbyterians very reformed in their theology. And at least again, in my region, yep. uh, they called themselves the frozen chosen, the frozen chosen. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's like, the old Calvinistic. That's yeah. the old Calvin, the, the old Calvinist, the traditional reformed theology, which is the, the new Calvinists, the young reformed, right. Or the, the reformed young or young, I'm getting, I'm screwing it up now. Right. Why are, are just say it. Why are restless reformed, right. This restlessness was also defined. They were younger, a younger generation, right? Exactly. Yeah. Not frozen, um, but still considered themselves to be chosen, I suppose. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I mean, there are a lot of uh, those theological traditions that remained in the young, restless and reformed. So, yeah, I think it's, you could characterize them as the the frozen chosen, if you will, but they certainly held to TULIP. Um, that acronym that became so popular with describing the theology of of uh, the Reformation or of some reformers in the Reformation, yeah. Calvin in particular, but even yeah. those after him. So to answer your question, Michael, um, I, I would say uh, I I would identify in the early 2000s. So the the new Calvinism really became it started like ramping up in the early 2000s, like the late nineties, but nine 11 seemed to be the pinnacle point. seemed to be the, the accelerating point of this movement. Um, well, there others- were a couple, weren't there a couple? I mean, certainly that was one of them, but I think right. concurrently in the context of the United States, you have the growth of the emerging church, what was called the emerging church. Yep. And then uh, of course, in the nineties, you have other, uh, the types of reform that are trying to occur in the United States around the evangelical church. And you have movements of evangelicals going back to the Catholic church and some going to the Orthodox church. There was at that time, a real kind of uh, theological unclarity, if you will, about and, what evangelicalism is and, and, you know, and who all falls in that camp, but right. And significantly as well, um, the growth and the expansion of liberal theology among a mm-hmm. lot of mainline denominations as well too. Right. Mm-hmm. So early on trailblazing, I can remember even in the nineties, um, the United Methodist church that I grew up in, in a conservative, you know, community was already beginning the process of embracing homosexuality right as one of its main points of of how it was going to move forward in their theology right and in the that time was bristling a number of people right and um and so you you have this kind of emerging these changes these shifts that were happening in the landscape as it pertains to me personally um and and where i find myself in it in the story of this movement um, is post 9-11 is already, there was a shift happening in my life. Um, I had um, uh, come to faith, the evangelical faith at a Promise Keepers event in 1996, um, but still kind of attended my, you know, my, my Methodist church upbringing. But, uh, and yet then some, somewhere at post 9-11 was all of a sudden like thrown into 
this new Calvinist movement and didn't even know it at the time. And for me, what it created, as I have been able to reflect back on this, was a sense of certainty. And that's what that's what the new Calvinist movement um, brought to the table uh, was a, a renewed sense of certainty in a very uncertain time. Um, and so it brought a level of conviction that I was apparently needing at the time. Um, and, and so for me, it, and then of course it also not only had conviction, but it also was matched with a movement, you know, uh, a movement dynamics, if you will, or at least a action, I should say, there seemed to be this match of evangelism and conviction that caused you to want to be a part of something that was not just frozen and chosen, but chosen and active. Right. And so that was kind of the movement that we found ourselves caught up into that I found appealing at the time. And I feel that this why. So, Michael, this is almost like a detailing parts of our conversations offline. It always strike struck me, strikes me still as funny. Matt, I love how you're talking about it in that active way. Um, I mean, shoot, the passion conference started about the same time. All of this did as well, right? The word passion, passionate, like there is a feeling that is also leading not just to the uh, the emotions, but activity. And thus, I love Jesus and I want other people to know him passionately. And so I am going to do all I can to actively evangelize, uh, to go out and serve on mission trips, you know, whatever at that that younger stage of I that I was in. So for me, that was coupled with that reformed theology. They 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 were married. They went together. Passion and action went with what I saw in scripture. So as I got older then and I got into the argument that people are like, well, you know, Calvinists and reformed people, they really just don't do a lot of mission work. It's just the people who uh, are free will people. Those are the people on the mission field. And that sounded so odd to me. Because that was so unlike my experience. That was so unlike my belief. And so when Matt's talking about that conviction and action, like I wholeheartedly agreed that that was something that I was familiar with. And then as I'm growing up and learning that historical tradition of what has Reformed theology been historically, what has Calvinism looked like in the landscape in America and the world, and a lot of people saying, you know, oh, yeah, the missionaries. you know, they're all, they're all uh, Arminians. And it's like, really? Like, I felt, I felt like, I felt like I was hoodwinked. Like somebody was telling me a punchline of a joke that I didn't know, or like I walked into it and they're like, and you're the fool. And it's like, well, no, I, I, I believe in this conviction and this action with passion. Like, yes, I'm all for it. So I think I was probably likely raised and influenced, not so much by my parents, uh, humorously, I fall on the reform side and they don't. So that's led to some fun conversations. Um, but some of the influences in my life were of that reform tradition. And, uh, but I was on the front edge of what was to come. So I appreciate even some of the, the historical context of what was going on in America and in other uh, conversations that I wasn't a part of and how it was influencing me. And now I'm the result. Yeah, well, I think another one of the influences that kind of gave rise to the young, restless, restless and reformed 
it was the the popularity of of personalities like Joel Olstein um and the and the increasing popularity of Hillsong and Bethel and you know these other uh movements if you will and i think they're rightly described as movements that uh, that really appealed to the emotion and and the action. It's interesting because it seems like the the YRR appealed to the theology and the action, and these other groups were appealing to the the emotion and the action, and uh, and they they naturally butted heads uh, with one another. Well, hold on. What do you mean by that? Because i i only I only ask that because like the Driscoll. If I were to just to use passion as an example, right? Passion conference. Uh, somebody, yeah. Like yeah. passion conference and, and all that it, I mean, again, it was an event even before it was so much a conference. Uh, but I think that would be accused rightfully or unrightfully uh, of being that passion and action, right? Yeah, the emotion well, think, and the action. And, yeah. and, but like Driscoll and his ilk were also heroes in that setting. So mm-hmm. I, I, at least again, early on, I'm talking early on. And so I wouldn't say that that, that, that YRR is attributed to being theology in action, which stands opposed to emotion and action. I'm saying I saw YRR being about passion or emotion, action, and theology. Mm-hmm. And it could very well be. I, I, I think at the underpinning of YRR is a is a the, theological movement um, and the personalities that could support it that were not only pastors but uh, academics um, who gave it kind of a uh, a, a solid uh, foundation for it whereas you don't see in some of the other movements um, you're not seeing that type of academic, uh, rigor that goes into doing theology that could create the passion uh, to, to move us to action. Um, I can remember, you know, and Andrew, I can assure you that there were reformed people who were missionaries back in those days. Um, because well, good, glad yeah. to hear that. <laughs> in the is it the early 90s? Um, Piper writes his book about uh, mission. Uh, what was that book called? Do you remember? It's a green book. I, I have it on my shelf somewhere. But is, are you talking about "Don't Waste Your Life"? No, no, um, not as desiring God, right? No, I mean that was that that it plays into this as well. But uh, I'll look it up. What Keep was talking. that book called? Mission something about missions and. Anyway, I, I mean, My, that Michael's was having a senile moment. I guess. Listeners, just <laughs> grace upon grace upon him. You know, the, this that is book the was very conversation yeah. right now. The Lord is full of grace. Yeah, that was very instrumental in the lives of many missionaries. And uh, and it was a call to action, you know, based on the, a theology that isn't necessarily explicit. And that's, I think, one of the beauties of John Piper is that he doesn't always beat the reformed drum, although certainly within what he's writing and, and talking about is reformed theology. Um, but, uh, but that book on missions was uh, very instrumental in many people's lives uh, because it gave them the theological underpinning for the passion to be involved in reaching those who 
uh, are in need of the gospel or, or who have not heard the gospel. And so there's an attraction to that. And that's why I, I think, you know, we rightly call the YRR a, a movement um, because movements have certain characteristics. And one of those characteristics, well, several of those characteristics you see uh, very clearly in uh, the young, restless, and reform, the charismatic leaders, you know, like the John Pipers and the Mark Driscolls, uh, the call uh, the to book, commitment. Yeah. The book is Let the Nations Be Glad. There you go. How could I okay. forget that? Let the Nations okay. Be Glad. Anyway, charismatic leaders like uh, Piper and like Driscoll yeah. is where you were going. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's, that's almost foundational to the success of a movement um, uh, as well as a call to action uh, of those who are a part of the movement and YRR did that brilliantly. I think Mark Driscoll was brilliant in calling people to get involved in issues of justice and involved in uh, evangelism of the city and engaging the culture, just as Piper was very instrumental in calling people to missions, as as well as you know other uh, conferences that emerge around those times. The the together for the gospel, it would be another one alongside of passion. So, um, but but one other characteristic I think is important here as well is the um, the the call to. Uh, a strict obedience to um, a, a teaching, a theology, and uh, and you you see that here. There is a, a, a an obedience that is expected uh, of those who would be in this camp of the young, restless, and reformed. And I and, and I'm not saying this. These are just observations, and I'm not saying that people are blind in walking into these things but that these are just simply characteristics of what will create a successful movement, um, particularly when, it, when we're talking about religi religious movements. So this was the interesting thread, going back to Mars Hill for a second and the podcast, this is the interesting thread that I feel like we got gypped on in the podcast and um, that that did not get explored to the next, nobody bothered at, they didn't bother to ask the next question. Cosper did not do this and I'm, I'm frustrated and maybe I should just email him, but they did an earlier episode before this conversation on young, restless and reformed. They followed this up later. This was an earlier sidebar conversation with um, uh, Joshua Harris. And Joshua Harris, as we know, is uh, he, he is uh, one of these kind of guys that kind of rose up into this movement, became of evangelical fame. Uh, what was his book that he wrote? Uh, it was a dating, I kiss dating it's, goodbye. Is that dating goodbye? And yes. funny, I can't remember the title of that book, and I can't remember the one of Piper's "Let the Nations Be Glad." <laughs> yeah, that's all right. I think more people may have read uh, Harris's. I didn't even read that book, but I remember the title of it. You're better for it. So, so he, so he came out this, uh, what a year or two years ago now, um, basically denouncing the faith, denounced, mm -hmm. you know, walked away from, from, uh, I think his marriage kind of fell apart. He walked away from the book. He, he disowned himself from the book and then has now disowned himself from Christianity. Um, and has been on the circuit of deconstruction. Now they interviewed him 
as this like sidebar side story conversation. And then later on came back to this young, restless reformed movement. And the themes are there because Josh was talking about how he too was sucked up into a movement that he didn't even fully understand himself at the time. Right. And was coming to terms with it. And in real time was still coming to terms with it. And then later on, this, this conversation about young restless reform was talked about, but more in an objective way. And, and I'm a little frustrated that the two things didn't get totally tied unless I missed it. And, but, you know, sometimes I listen to the stuff while I'm mowing the lawn or whatever um, on double speed, but I didn't catch, like, th- th- I think these two things are totally interconnected because Josh Harris's story is not unique. It's mm-hmm. not unique. His, what's unique about it is that he just, he became like an evangelical stardom for a short time. That's the only unique part about his story. His, his story is replicated amongst many, many, many other people, especially those who are listening, who are leaders of a church or those who are leading, who are listening right now, who like, that is my story. I'm on the outskirts. I don't even know if I identify with this evangelical movement. And now it's talking about Mars Hill and talking about the young restless reform movement. And suddenly I'm putting pieces together for the first time that I'm now realizing, oh my gosh, I was sucked up into a movement, not authentic Orthodox Christianity. Um, do you, it, I, that, that's the connection I was making in the whole, the entirety of the Mars Hill podcast is this is exposing a sub movement, a subculture, a false narrative of the Christian movement that sucked, that took the, the evangelical world by storm in some ways and is quickly collapsed. And, and yet there are people sitting here wondering why nobody's attending their churches anymore. Um, okay, but can I jump in and also say, what are you saying that would not be true of the American Western Evangelical Church? That so many people have got up and caught up into it, that they have fallen in line with it, that they have uh, passionately chased Jesus, that they have felt that this is the way to lead. And then at some point along the line, they stop and they say, what have I got caught up in? Is this actually the Christianity that Jesus talks about, the way the faithful following of him, or am I just culturally a part of an institution that is telling me that this is what faith looks like, right? Matt, you're nodding your head. Michael, you look quizzical. So (laughs) either of you, please jump in. But at least that's what I'm, I'm thinking, Matt, as I hear what you're saying, because you're saying Josh's story is a lot of people's story, and I'm hearing it going... Josh's story is save the write a popular book and go to international stardom, you know, save that fact. It's, it's a whole lot of Christian stories, at least people who are looking at their faith in America. And I don't know if they go full deconstruction, but right. Anyway, I I wouldn't, I wouldn't separate it. I I think it's all part of the same um, conglomeration. I, I think it's all, I think it's all interwoven. It's all mixed in. I think young, restless, and reformed new Calvinist movement is just another element to, and was a significant portion of the broader pie of what we have seen is this downward fall of Western evangelicalism, Western Christianity, in my opinion. Um, actually, we got to get uh, Christian uh, Dumay on the podcast sometime to talk about her her book, Jesus and John Wayne, because this actually is brought up. I mean, we, we need to add in because now, now you ask the next question. 
where does patriarchy come in? Where does um, where where does uh, Christian nationalism get played in here? Where does white supremacy get talked about? Where does slavery um, and how the church was uh, a proponent of slavery for quite some time early in the founding of our father, you know, fa- the founding fathers and the founding of our nation? I mean, where else do we keep? You know, in some ways, we have to keep going. You have to keep talking about these things, and eventually, we get back to Ephesians in the first century. Um, which is the purpose of our podcast here. And so, you know, I've said it before. I'm like, I, I, yeah, keep deconstructing, keep unpeeling back the layers, in my opinion. Um, and so for that, I'm thankful for the Mars Hill podcast. Um, and because it, it actually begins that process for people to start pulling pieces together. But I think that the temptation is to, when we expose a movement, we swing to the next one. And that's something we're trying to prevent and also trying to get holistic approach on here with physiology too. Am I correct on that, Michael? Like we don't yeah. want, like, cause that's going to be the question now. Well, who's to say you guys aren't just starting up another movement. Um, right. Yeah. To- new right. idea, new idea, new idea, actually old idea, old idea, old yeah. idea, right. new leader, right. new authoritarians, new, right. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I think you're right. I think the, the one of the concerns that I have, and, and again, I still haven't listened to the podcast. It keeps popping up on my podcast app as as a recommendation of something I should listen Michael, to. And I, I Michael, know, listen, Michael, uh, and maybe I will at some point. But I think one of the dangers to any any type of movement once it's been uh, you know, particularly Marcel, once it's been exposed, is that we'll peel back things to get to a place where we'll say, oh, okay, I can, I'm comfortable with that. We'll stop here and we won't go any further. And um, I think that probably is, would be characteristic of, you know, the young, restless and reformed. They'll peel back the layers until they get to the, the 16th century, and say, okay, here's where we build our foundation. And, and what we've been saying on this podcast uh, over and over again is that we need to keep going. Let's keep peeling back until we get to the first century, because that's honestly, that's what Calvin did. Calvin peeled back layers and layers of theology. Did, that Michael had just over. Pro- did he just say something kind about John Calvin? <laughs> Hold Note on. the time the- stamp. Note yeah. the timestamp. Let's let's section this out. Let's Dude, put it on the just... socials. Come on. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, for that, I, I have a huge amount of respect for someone who is going to begin to peel back those layers, but they have to go all the way. It's not just stopping at what we think is the... Uh, the you know the the perfect biblical form of theology uh, which the YRR would say is reformed theology um, I think we have to keep going back let's go back let's keep peeling the layers back let's get to the first century and and then begin to build build uh, and reconstruct but until we get back to the the early centuries I'm afraid that, you know, we'll, we'll keep seeing these type of movements rise and grow, and they'll have new charismatic leaders. They'll have new mega churches that people will be attracted to and say, oh, gosh, he's grown his church to 6,000. Let's go talk with him because he obviously has all the answers that we need to grow our churches to 6,000 and so on. And so I think we have to be careful um, about those things and uh, really do the hard work of uh, going back more deeply in our theology. 
Well, and it seems like that's ultimately what the new Calvinist movement really was. It was just reinvigorating the, you know, that that period of time, the 1600s. Right. And it was just a, in, in putting a modern American value twist to it. And if anything, I, it probably, even if you were just to put it into a political lens, it was just a conservative rebuttal to a growing liberal movement. So it mm-hmm. was the conservative movement staking its claim in in theology and saying we're rejecting liberal agendas and liberal ideas. And that's ultimately what it was. I mean, from a political with through a political lens. And so if you were already conservative leaning, you and you believed in God, this is where you went. You had no other home to go to. This was it. And it actually, I think, puts a really important lens on today. I mean, here we are a year later after the riot, the insurrection, the the peaceful protest, whatever you dare call it, <laughs> happened at the Capitol in, in January 6, 2001. Um, you have feelings, Matt? I can't no, tell. No, I have no feelings. Um, okay. <clears throat> uh, I'm heartless. Um, yeah, I have a few feelings. I'm an Enneagram one, If you, for those listening and don't know that. Um so we'll do a podcast on that, by the way, at yeah, some point. Another thing that Michael refuses <laughs> to participate in is being labeled any number on the Enneagram, even though we think we might have him pegged. Um, yeah. So he um, thinks he's a 12. Anyway. <laughs> Just add them all uh, up. He's the summation of all, of all of them. Um, so, you know, it, like here we are a year later and we're dealing with the, this immense political polarization in our country, right? And even churches are not immune to this. This is embedded within your church context now. I mean, you cannot mm-hmm. not escape this. Um, you know, even it's affecting how we, you know, how pastors preach um, and the things in which they engage with. Uh, th- this is this is the moment of our time. And if you are already conservative leaning, you feel like you only have one place to go. If you're already liberal, progressive leaning, you feel like you only have one place to go there. You feel like you're, and there are many in the caught in between who literally are listening right now. Like I'm homeless. I don't know where I belong between these two camps, but I feel like I'm forced to choose between one or the other. And, um, you know, they're, they're just dangerous grounds that are being drawn here. D- dangerous lines, I should say that are being drawn. Um, and so, and I think we should be aware of that. We need to be aware of the different like replacement theologies, the replacement um, movements for my old movement, my own home. And like, oh, this feels like close enough to what I'm used to, but it's got a little different spin on it. Um, I, we need to be cautious about these things and we need to be really mindful and thoughtful. Um, and we have to be willing to abandon the old thinking, the old ways and help understand where we've maybe gone astray where maybe we've been hoodwinked into some, some old bad theology or even, you know, bad political ideas that just honestly just have never served us well. Um, okay. So, so I, can I jump in? Cause yeah. I think you're bringing up something that's crucial. And I think all of us thinking people are listening and oh, yes, mm, mm-hmm. you know, thank you, Matt. Thank you for encouraging us to, to stay away from those extremes and, and make sure that we don't jump to another extreme. To another so how goal, right how that's that's my question for you and yeah. michael how yeah. do we help root ourselves in something that is michael i'm not trying to trigger you something that's a more a biblical faith something that is more uh in line with christ and what he really did teach and not an extreme 
mm-hmm. and not something that is uh, of a different name. Yeah. Well, no, I think that's the question. And that's uh, what we've been trying to get at is that we need to go back. We need to peel back these things. Here's here's the problem, I think, in theology today, Um, just kind of broadly uh, painting this picture, is that we tend to read theology from now backwards. And so for the for the young restless and reform, for example, they'll take their uh, Reformation doctrines of predestination, for example, they'll go to a text like Ephesians chapter one that talks about predestination and just assume that the predestination that Paul is talking about in Ephesians one is the predestination of Calvin in the 15th century. Well, it wasn't. Um, and the text really is clear about that. But when we go from our theology back to the text, we get um, what's what's the word? We can get entangled into a uh, distorted interpretation of the text. And so um, where we have to start is what did the early church think about these things and then move forward? And uh, and that's where good theology is built, um, because if we if we begin with theology, then uh, our theological positions are going to inform the biblical text. And so, again, where we need to start is really understanding the context of the first century. Uh, understanding why it was, what was the motivation behind uh, the, the authors of the New Testament in particular, and uh, and what what was understood by that early church. And we can only get there if we do the hard work of di- diving into the early texts, uh, both New and- Testament text and early apostolic fathers, the apologists, and uh, the church fathers. I feel that what you're saying, I think we just need to continue to say, this is hard work. Like this is not sure. an easy task and, and to, to bill it as that, um, because there's something that you said that, uh, brought to mind a study I'm doing right now with some gentlemen at church. And it's like a, it's like a basic, it's like a basic discipleship book, right? Helping people who are either not yet in or looking at, or just starting their faith and how to, to build from there. So walking through it. And so the author, who will remain nameless because I don't want to throw mud, um, in doing something that's uh, go back to scripture and read your Bible, it's a good thing, right? And uh, be be in in prayer and study daily. This is a good thing, right? Like I'm I'm all for this, but in doing so, applies modern sensibilities to then hit this biblical idea of being in God's word and being shaped by God's word and pursuing God's heart, but does so through the lens of this rigorous, studious, if you don't spend X amount of time every day in scripture, then you are not following hard after God. If you aren't, uh, I would pull out the book and read it, but um, there, there's just this leaning that comes off from the heart of just what you said, Michael, let's go back to those early texts. Let's see what's revealed. Let's see what is there and what was understood at the time and then build out from there. And that task is so hard because we have so many voices for those of us too, who were raised in the church uh, with this shame or this understanding of 
and your study in God's word or your living out of God's word must look like this, mm. or you're not a good Christian. Well, and it yeah, must follow out like, yeah. Right. I, I totally agree. It is hard work. But this is where the academy comes in here. And uh, I'm reminded, Matt, I'm going to give a plug for your uh, your boss, uh, because I appreciated so much a series of lectures he did on, on the scripture and canon. Uh, but in one of the lectures, uh, a student just had to interject. Uh, this was a doctoral class at Knox Theological Seminary, and the student said something to the effect, gosh, I've gone to Bible school. I have a bachelor's degree in, in biblical studies. I have an MDiv. And what you're telling me now are things that I have never heard. And, and, uh, and that's a lot of people's experience. Uh, because they haven't been instructed in the early uh, church and the history of the early church. And that's the experience of evangelicalism. I mean, we, and I've written about this and others have written about this, is that we have a historical amnesia. Uh, we see 500 years of Christian history, and that's it. And when there is actually 2,000 years of Christian history. And so we need to spend uh, our time to, to look at that history and, and find the people uh, like Scott and others who are writing about the early church and uh, dive deeply into their, their research and, and the things that they're writing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think that that's, you know, we, we have to recognize, too, the cultural influences that we cannot help but realize is just part of our upbringing. I mean, yeah, I remember growing up watching Bugs Bunny and seeing the little like, you know, angel on one shoulder, the devil on the other, right? Of this this notion between good and evil or you know if a character were who's the character that always ended up in this like depiction of hell with the uh was it Sylvester Sylvester the cat or I forget who you know what character would always end up in What's that? I, I don't I don't remember. Do you know what I'm there talking was about? There were lots of oh, characters yeah, 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 yeah. that constantly yeah, would end up there. in this like perpetual so. hellish place with you know with, with the devil, right? And it, this is part of the um, like the Western cultural like phenomenon. I mean, it's yeah. like this this is embedded. This is the picture. It's there, yeah. right? And and in many regards, there's a sense of a generation that's holding on to that picture still. Like that's. That's almost in sense like Bugs Bunny's not real. That picture's not real, but the but the notion of that is so real that we have to continue to impress that into the culture. When it's like that is a newer phenomenon of the last, you know. I, I mean, I'm not trying to discount the the whole theology of hell. You know, I, I don't want that to be mistaken about on that. We can have a whole other conversation about this, but I just want to say that the picture of that, the notion of this this truth has been so embedded within, and I'm just using it as an example of how many other things within the Christian construct mm. that has been just kind of told into our story that I think that there's just a movement of Christians that are like, I'm watching this unravel or being challenged or being rethought, you know, and how many other things we've used to justify uh, inhumanity, uh, um, oppression, racism, uh, you know, this, these are all things that have been born out of, unfortunately, people who have used the scriptures against other people to mm -hmm. exert power and authority uh, over others. And, and, and I, th there's, th this is, unfortunately, we heard this a lot in the Marcel podcast about 
the leaders of Mars Hill, including Mark Driscoll, using scripture to exert authority and power over other people, including abuses towards women, especially. And that that's not okay. It's not okay, but we justify it. And including what eventually brought them down was justifying the, you know, his, his, uh, you know, his book on, (laughs) and basically trying to work game the system, you know, uh, all for the kingdom of God. Right. And, and I think we need to be calling this out and we need to be saying that's not, that's not okay. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's wise. It just, as you're saying it is, this is not okay. Not just he is not okay. Not just what Mark Driscoll did was the one outlier. Like I appreciate you saying it, the leaders at Mars Hill, help perpetuate this. Mark Driscoll wasn't in those groups at every home enforcing all of these things. There were leaders that ran with this bad theology and this cruelty to the people that they said they loved and perpetuated this. And so what what we want to say is that that has to be stood against. And these things need to be rooted out because the rise and the name of the podcast was the rise and fall of Mars Hill, not the rise and fall of Mark Driscoll. It was, it was an entity. It was a group of leaders and they sinned and there were awful ramifications from that Mm. awful fallout. And so we want to say, we need to go back to scripture. We need to go back to the beginning and reform. I'm going to separate those two words real nice and long. Reform our faith uh, so such that it looks like the faithful call that Jesus gave to us, not like a cultural paradigm. Right. That's the next yeah. new thing. And, and that's the challenge here because, I, I mean, Reformed theologians, and I have a lot of friends who are Reformed theologians, they would say that absolutely they've done that. and uh, And they believe that through their efforts of understanding history and the Bible and so on, that they've landed on Reformed theology. And that's great. Um, and there are others, Arminian theologians, uh, Roger Olson comes immediately to mind, and others who would say the same thing about their theology. And so I think what we have to understand is this uncomfortable tension that we have of uh, one desiring deeply to believe in something, and that often is expressed in a particular theology. And secondly, to understand that, you know what, my particular theology might not actually be uh, the theology. And, uh, and so there's this tremendous tension. And so I think a danger in movements in general is when there is such a demand that we adhere a hundred percent to everything a leader says or everything a theology says, that it blinds us to uh, to allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives to help us to understand uh, the Scripture uh, for ourselves. I'm reminded uh, of something that Jackson Wu uh, said a a few days ago. Um, He wrote an article about nine marks and. And uh, an issue that they had raised, but he made this comment that I think is apropos. He said, our theology is not entirely equivalent to the Bible. Biblical truth is always bigger and better than our theology. 
And I think that's true. And that's what we want to get to is biblical truth and let that then shape our theology. And I think too, I mean, going along with this is that we have to understand that the theology forms in context. And so just like the Reformed theology formed in the 15th century context, addressing issues within the Catholic church, um, we have to understand that our theology is going to form in context, and that context is going to inform in some way the way in which we express that theology. And so I think having an understanding that uh, a contextualized theology is is what we need to be looking at and looking for, uh, understanding how theology can be adapted, uh, to not compromising biblical truth, but understanding that how we express that theology can be adapted and contextualized in such a way that we can effectively address the issues that uh, the church is wrestling with today, but also our culture. And, and this goes back, I think, just to Andrew, what you were saying earlier, and um, we could start to land the plane here, but um, you had said, you know, this is hard. You were kind of rebutting to Michael earlier, but like, Michael, this is hard work. And, and I think the reaction to most people is how I sit in my church, it's, it's the average layperson, the average congregant, you know, there, I, you hear it often, like I sit down and I read this text and I've got this incredible articulate individual in front of me who, who says he or she is just no different than I am, but clearly is, is educated in this area is clearly trained, devotes their life to this. How could I ever derive this sermon, this, the, this, these application points from this single line, these single two lines of text and, and help me to understand and see, you know, what is written here. And that's unfortunately feels like an immense amount of work to the average individual. And then you also get the the other side of that where it's like, oh, I just read the text plainly and I just read into it as I see it. And that's what it is. And yeah, and it takes intellectual honesty and humility to be able to do that faithfully. And, uh, and that starts in the pulpit, you know, yes. um, uh, what I was just about to say. Yeah. And, and if you're not hearing that from the pulpit, of course, that would be an indication of probably a, a place that you don't want to be uh, it, it, learning about scripture. But, but, um, and I think even, even then um, it begins in the pulpit for those of us who are in the church, but, but for those who are in the pulpit, it begins at their theological education. And so if their theological education is limited to a particular theological perspective, they're, they're missing out on uh, the breadth of what God has done over 2,000 years to help us to understand more about who he is. And, uh, and so we need to expand our theological horizons. And I was going to jump in and just say, pastors, church leaders, those who are getting in the pulpit or in any sort of teaching capacity, please don't feel that you know what the text says or that you've done this one before and that you've got it like, please go to God's word with humility every single time you're about to teach and come as a learner. And uh, like Michael said, bring that to either the congregation or the classroom or the group of people with humility such that you are still in process. You are not better than anybody you are leading and um, 
bring God's word as something that he has for all of us. And um, that humility will actually encourage your congregation that this is something that they can do and is for them. They can step into a theological classroom or uh, begin those studies, not because it's only for the professionals, but we're all learners. We all need to grow in our discipleship. We all need to grow in our Christ-likeness. And this is a valid, valid place on that spectrum. It's for all of us. Man, and that's that requires a special posture because I think what's one thing for us to say as as those who are pastors and preachers to go like, yeah, like I want to have that level of humility, but then to have that person come up and challenge you afterwards is not an easy place and vulnerable too. But um, yeah, we we pray, we pray for that, and and we need that. I think moving forward, that will be the posture um, going forward. I think. Um, guys, this was great. This is a good conversation, Michael, as always, Andrew, as always, this is wonderful. And just to our listeners, as a reminder, like this ephesiology is not the reaction to the downfall of Western Christianity. It is, it seeks to truly do what we believe in, and that is doing theology in community. And that's what we're attempting to do here in the podcast is invite the entire community into doing theology to invite you into doing this. And so to, to really, to pave a better way forward. Um, and so we appreciate you being on the ride with us and doing theology and community with us here on the Ephesiology podcast. And of course, through our other avenues, like on online, um, and through the master classes as well. And we are glad that you are part of the growing Ephesiology global community. Learn more about Ephesiology and get access to free missional resources for you, your church and leadership teams at Ephesiology.com. So for Michael, Andrew, and myself, we'll talk again right here on the Ephesiology Podcast. Mm-hmm.